Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Matt McInnes-Watson. So Matt is a performance coach and consultant who specializes in plyometrics and speed training. He's studying his PhD in plyometrics and runs Plus Plyos, which is an online coaching platform. He aims to develop and educate athletes and coaches all over the world with his services. So who better today to discuss how you can use plyometrics to adapt with elite level athletes. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Matt onto the show. So Matt, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Um, so I'm uh, Matt McInnes-Watson. Um, some of you might have seen some of my stuff on social media, but I um, I think I'm slowly creating myself into the plyo guy, which is, I don't know whether that's good or bad. But um, yeah, I am kind of trying to push plyometrics in the in the direction that I think it should be going in for the industry for us to really get what I experience day to day with with coaching athletes and, and using plyometrics how I think it should be implemented and how my mentors have kind of taught me to to implement it um I currently run a company called plus Plies, which as you can tell is, is primarily about coaching plyometrics um, and the education around it and uh, I also study a, uh, a self-funded uh, PhD, which is also in biometrics. So uh, there's, a, there's obviously a strong theme there uh, in terms of my love for for players, um, but for speed and power in, in general. And, and preparation, I think, um, is, a, is a good way to, to look at biometrics and the kind of speed and power realms of things and, and finding ways in which we can we can get that um, highly specific transfer that we all kind of dream for. Um, that yeah, I think everyone's kind of on the look for that now. There's there's such a we're in such a great era of great information and not so great information. So we're we're trying to find those um, those parts to our programming and training and stuff that that's really going to make a true impact rather than just keeping those assumptions there that we might have seen in the past. So um, you know, hopefully I can give my kind of two cents to the to the industry and and kind of move things along in terms of dynamic movement. So, like, obviously, we're going to discuss loads of stuff about plyometrics in a minute, but you alluded to some stuff which might be uh, less good. So, to to kind of frame the conversation, then, what what's the stuff that you think is then suboptimal or maybe doesn't transfer, and the stuff that you think, oh, yeah, you know what, you need to get rid of that, but we need to keep the stuff we're going to discuss later. I mean, I I think the to to be kind of harsh to it um, and to harsh to kind of the the forefather of it, which is Dr. Yuri Verkachansky, and I mean, I mean no, no, no disrespect to the man because I know I follow a lot of his work to the T. But there's a, a misinterpretation, I think, of a lot of his work where we assume that shock training or um, or using pl- platform drops or altitude falls as the the primary source of plyometric training, and that it's primarily about stimulating the musculature or the muscular tenderness unit as best as we can to get the best outputs possible where i think realistically we have probably 95 percent of athletes that probably just need to learn how to land and take off effectively um, using just typical ground-based locomotion um, and i think that that is going to change and influence athletes 
you know, tenfold as opposed to what you might get from just using altitude falls or the shock method itself. Um, and yeah, I don't think that 95% of athletes also need that. I, I feel that we can get so much more out of all the ground-based stuff that it's the kind of cherry on top. It's the athlete that's 10 years into a, into a career that's looking for those millimeters. It's looking for ways in which we can stimulate an athlete that may have got too used to a certain stimulus over, you know, those longer periods of time. Most of the time we've got athletes that, you know, you're, you're seeing a, a coach give athletes depth jumps and this is a 16 year old kid that wants to gain five inches on their vertical when they probably could just go out and jump up to a basketball hoop, something as simple as that. Um, so yeah, there's that overuse of that still within the industry. I think it's getting a lot better um, for that. Uh, and you can start to see a transitional change, but you know, then we kind of take a few steps back again. And I see that there's, yeah, we're still stuck on that. Um, whether that's a misinterpretation, whether that's, um, a step forward, I think maybe in the science, we are starting to understand what can come from the adaptations of more locomotive based movement. Um, and we're getting a lot more, uh, research on that. And it's gradually getting better and better in terms of the implementation of it over an intervention and looking at, um, the differences in certain movements and how we can manipulate those vol volumes and intensities of different movements. Um, so that, that's kind of the starting point that I would, I would look at with, with plyometrics as a whole you know why do we why do we see that people keep coming back to it is it because they don't know how to coach the other stuff and it's really simple to just chuck people off the platforms probably that's that's the number one reason why they don't understand how to implement things over long periods of time understand how to expose athletes to the right volumes and intensities and not overcook that um, and again hopefully i can bring some of that background of knowledge that i've got from doing it for the past 13 14 years um and start to change the, you know bring about a bit more confidence in, in teaching that kind of plyometric rather than the depth jumping stuff excellent excellent so like when we kick off into that whole conversation and we're going to go into some depth but before we get into that like what are plyometrics because it's not just what you mentioned like the the jumping off really high stuff and seeing juiced up russian guys do that really well so what what is it and what are the benefits i think my my term for plyometrics now is becoming more and more simplistic in that it's a landing and takeoff based action that's pretty fast and and honestly you can you can look at 99% of movement that has a landing and takeoff action. And if your eyes see that it's relatively fast, it's probably pretty plyometric. It has the same um, landing sequence that you would see even in a, in a depth, depth jump. Um, the depth jump might be a little bit softer in terms of the, the joint flexion because we're falling from altitudes that might be a bit higher than what we'd expect from more of like a drop jump where it's a bit more of a stiffer landing. But in retrospect, if it's, if it looks relatively quickly, uh, relatively quick, then the, the reasoning behind it being plyometric is probably pretty strong. Um, it's, it has that elastic and reflexive nature to it. And we're able to use a lot more of the tendons ability to give us a bit more of a snapback as opposed to more of a muscular-based movement that might be a bit more slower 
and more of a kind of concentric effort to get out of the bottom of a movement. That That's where I would start all the time with pliers. Landing and takeoff, cool. Is it relatively fast? Great. It's probably plyometric. If you can find movements that that are like that, but you still don't see them as plyometric, please send them to me because I'd love to see them. Um, but in terms of how we move, if it's quite quick and it's quite locomotive in nature, whether it's kind of bounding from side to side, like in a slalom-based action, it's probably pretty plyometric. There's probably quite a high force to it, and it's probably pretty quick on the ground as a landing and a takeoff sequence to it. Perfect. And what what are the benefits of doing these exercises, right? So for, for athletes who are listening who maybe aren't super clued up into their, their physiology, uh, for maybe some coaches who need to brush up, like what why would you go about doing this? Well, I think that it's it's all part of the the foundation of movement that we that we use within sport. How many, you know, speed and power based sports or field based court or court based or um you know, how many of those sports don't use landings and takeoffs regularly? Are you running? Well, it's, well, if it's yes, then you're probably using some sort of plyometric ability to run, to change direction. Is, are there, you know, multi-directional movements to it that have landings and takeoffs in it? Even if it's a bit slower, then there's the opportunity for us to develop those slower movements to be maybe more forceful or a bit quicker than you might want. If you're playing if you're playing defense and basketball, when you backward shuffle, when you transition to run sideways or sideward shuffle to play defense, can we make that faster with plyometrics? I think so. Plyometrics is that ability to be, as I mentioned before, to be more reflexive and to use the, the built-in human, um, you, could, you could say, in a kind of an inherent nature to our bodies to want to deflect off of the ground. We don't move on four limbs, therefore we don't use kind of softer absorbing movements to, to how we move when we're moving at speed. When you look at something like a cat, the reason why they, they're able to explode and then land into from such heights is because they're able to absorb so much more around four joints. So you'll see them when, when a cat lands, they flex so much more. When we land, we want to move off that foot quickly because we're landing either on one or sometimes two limbs. That requires far more stiffer movements. When I say stiff, I mean less flexion at the at the major joints that are receiving that force. We want to get off that foot quickly. We don't want to to sink into it too much because we know that the the joints are going to be exposed to too much higher stress when there is more flexion at it. If we're able to stack the body kind of head to toe and you have to have that kind of almost shoulder to hip to knee to ankle kind of up and down kind of vertical alignment we're able to distribute that shock of overload throughout the body and throughout those joints um, rather than it being more of kind of like a an intra-joint kind of focus where you're getting too much knee flexion and therefore you're getting so much more load around the knee so we're looking at creating those reflexive tendencies or improving those reflexive tendencies as much as possible and in doing when we're trying to do that we're trying to work on the tendons and we're trying to work on some of the elastic components built into the muscular tenderness unit which is the joining part of the where the muscle and the tendon meet so in making the 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 tendon stiffer and the the muscular action in terms of how it works with the tendon faster and stiffer as well 
we're getting an overall joint stiffness, which is, as I said, is more preferable for us to move dynamically out of that. And when us humans are able to be stiffer, we're able to use the energy that comes from the previous action. So let's say that you're sprinting in a straight line with well, the velocity that I already have moving forward. If I was to drop into the next landing, let's say I'm already airborne and I put my foot down, I think that velocity is going to go completely downhill. You want to maintain that velocity. So if we stay stiff and tall and we don't soften up that joint, we're going to what's called couple the energy effectively so we're going to use that that uh, kinetic energy we're going to transition through that stride and we're going to keep going and a lot of plyometric kind of locomotive plyometric movement is fundamentally built on that and it's using those tendons it's using more of an isometric or a kind of a static strength to the muscles for the tendon to be used in those actions and um, so hopefully that wasn't too of a long answer but it's kind of the basis of everything in terms of when we're looking at getting reflexive actions um, from the kind of nature bred part of our of our joints. Um, we all have it within us. It's just how we tap into it and how we kind of improve that and adapt that further, whether it's stiffening the tendons, improving the elastic components of those tendons. Um and alongside that, improving the musculature to, to marry up with that tendon movement and stiffness in general. Absolutely excellent. So when, when people are going to go and train this, right, obviously you've got a difference between someone who uh, is 16 years old, they're just coming in to, to doing some plyometrics or doing strength training, and someone who's maybe 10 years in the game. And like you said, they're using the, the higher intensity plyometrics to get the extra juice out of that last little squeeze of their career potentially. So how should plyometrics then differ between that 16 year old who's at the start of their career and maybe someone who's towards the end or a higher, has a try higher training age, um, in terms of like the, the outputs they do and the type of plyometrics that they have to, to perform. So to, uh, to kind of unfortunately start the answer with a, a bit of a, a rant towards this sort of stuff is that there's such an assumption that there's a progressive model to plyometrics. Um, and I'm someone that kind of challenges that regularly because I don't necessarily use many external boxes um, or, yeah, I'd say boxes in general to, to stimulate the, the reactions and the forces that you receive. Um, from the previous kind of fall into that landing um, and because of that i will i base all of my you could i don't like to use the word progression but i use it i use i use the word continuum and that we have a, a specific loading continuum the highest loading the highest part of the loading continuum is a hop and a hop to me is moving continuously on one leg so it's just left 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 the reason why that's at the top is because you are spiking the fastest um, entrance into that uh, ground contact. So the, the limb velocity is what's spiking your ground uh, reaction force. So the faster I whip that leg round, the faster I hit the floor, the higher the ground reaction force. And that scale or continuum basically then just filters down into the lowest or the the smallest ground reaction force, which is just bilateral leaps or pogos, whatever you might might term it. And I'll have movements along that continuum that build up to the top. Now, 
there is no difference uh, in a program for someone that is 16 and someone that is or 12 or however young you want to make it as opposed to a pro athlete when it comes to using locomotive-based plyometrics. The only thing that changes is your ability to deliver more force because you are more experienced in doing so. So when we start at a younger age or we start from more of a, a, beginner, a beginner point, it doesn't matter what age stage you are. If you've never done plyometrics before and you're 25, you can't go straight to advance. You have to start from the beginning, in my opinion. Um, now, you will use all the movements along the continuum. Okay, maybe it will take you, let's say, 10 to 12 weeks to maybe try to build up towards a hop at the top of the continuum. But you will start to, over the first year or two, you will start to build more of a capacity to deliver higher forces at higher velocities. Your body will start to adapt. You will be able to handle um, greater load in, let's say, a unilateral position as opposed to what you might have done before. You're able to increase the speed into a certain movement, which again, increases the ground reaction force. And it's all self-selecting in how you move as the individual. So let's say, let's take bilateral pogo leaps for height. Okay. If I am to do it as opposed to a beginner athlete, and I'm quite an experienced person, or maybe I'm not in great shape at the moment, but when I was, when I was in good shape, my first initial jump into the air to get things going might be, let's say 60, 70 centimeters into the air. Well, the young athlete's only jumping 20, 25 centimeters into the air. My next landing is so much more than the younger or less experienced athlete. So I'm already, I'm giving myself a self-prescribed landing. I am dictating what happens in the next landing. And I am, I'm prescribing the adaptations that I'm going to be getting, basically. So whatever ground reaction force I'm going to be getting is coming from the previous movement that I've done. So that's why I always have preference over not using boxes. Using ground-based locomotive movements allows me to dictate what I'm about to receive. I don't, I'm not pushed off of a box and, and there's the assumption of the coach that, that they're like, oh yeah, this athlete's ready for that. And that's why we get this fear of everyone being like, oh, I'm not sure whether to use plyometrics for athletes. And I'm like, well, why don't you just get them to start leaping on the spot? Like they control it. You're not, you're not throwing them up into the air and then them hoping that they'll land and do something with that move. So it becomes about you being able to deliver more force in faster time frames and do that at higher speeds. And that will gradually in increase and improve over long periods of time. And I've seen improvements over, you know, I was, when I was in a training group as an athlete, I then transitioned into being a coach. And I saw an athlete come into the training group at, you know, 12, 13 and transition into a, into a 19, 20 year old athlete that I was then coaching. And they were using the same movements, but their ability to do it obviously improves because of their maturation and their development as an athlete. Um, through stages of, of growth and stuff, but the way in which they moved and delivered force continually grew. You, you can't just keep coming up with this new stimulus. They, the athlete themselves, has to start to learn how to create that stimulus for themselves in using higher velocities. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, that there's never, there's never enough velocity. We, we all know that. We all know we can run faster and jump higher. Um, or further and therefore we can then induce that 
into the, the next landing and, and figure out what to do with those forces if, if they are super maximal or, or maximal based. Um, so that's, uh, it's maybe a quite a different way to look at plyometrics, but ultimately I think it keeps people safe because that's the biggest fear when it comes to coaching it or trying it yourself if you're an athlete. So taking boxes out of the equation, that could be your first thing if you've never coached plyometrics before. Spend five years doing some ground-based plyometrics. I can guarantee your athletes will continue to develop in those five-year periods. And if they plateau, then you can start looking at uh, altitude falls and, and depth jumps. There's no problems with that. Um, and again, you might say, you know what, my athletes still prefer moving on the ground and, and figuring things out themselves. And that's a super interesting way of looking at things, right? So you're, instead of going for that like known impact from consistently 30 centimeters, 45, whatever it is, um, you, you self-regulate and you can effectively give everyone the same program, right? So you could, for the 13-year-old all the way up to the 26-year-old, they could all do the same things, provided that the 26-year-old is obviously more physically capable than the 13-year-old. Um, how does that work then with athletes? Do, do you think that advanced athletes then need this this different program or do you think that advanced athletes can still use the same program provided they of course have more uh height more power more um stimulus from those exercises yeah normally normally the the biggest thing that comes in is figuring out ways in which we can expose them to more maximal based plyometrics we have we we've probably built up more of these sub-maximal capacities so if i can get them to be doing more things for height more you know hops for speed distance if i can do more of that in their in the whole of their year then that that's ultimately becomes my goal the sub elite athlete or the beginner however you want to look at it they're going to start with more general capacity based plyometrics and realistically, that shouldn't leave their program throughout the year. They'll have sprinklings of little bits of high-intensity stuff. The likelihood for them to be able to handle um, a high volume of, of more intense stuff is a lot lower. So you always have that little bit of a stimulus there, but it will be it will be much more reduced. You know, it could be it could be ten to fifteen percent of their program of plyometrics. Whereas we want to get to a stage where we've got advanced guys that are getting ex- more exposures to higher demanding movements um and it still might might only be up to kind of 30 i think 40 percent of a program is where i've got to with you know a junior international athlete um i i haven't personally coached any like world class um track and field athletes that's where you'd normally see the most volume of that sort of stuff um but junior internationally yeah about 35 percent of the program was was maximal based um or highly intense pliers, and you still have kind of sixty-five percent um, of of more extensive stuff. They just people just can't handle the volume, and that's always the aim, isn't it? Is to is to expose people to more of the specific demands of the sport, or actually the actual specific sport itself. The more we can do that, the better we will become at it. So, if I can expose people more to the intense stuff, then great. Um, that that's ultimately where things will change. So. Um, yeah, more of that is perfect, but we still need that, that supportive kind of base of everything that is going to give us general adaptation and ultimately keep us safe throughout the year. 
even in the in-season opposing the off-season. So. So then the, the key differences between the, the younger and the older athlete who might have approximately the same program is the uh, the volume of high-intensity work that the um, the older, more experienced athlete might do in order to keep getting adaptation then. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, it, there's, you know, there's a, there's also a part to it where there's probably also a, a bit of a crossover period of that is where you, do, if you were to have someone that would say, you know, a veteran world-class athlete that, you know, been to multiple Olympic games, it probably gets to a, st- a stage where it's like, let's just keep a relative exposure in there. We're probably not going to get much more of an adaptation. It's probably going to be maintaining a stimulus there and an, a stimulus effect to it. Um, so yeah, that, that tends to be how the, the jumpers in, in track and field also train specifically for their event as well. It, it's more about maintain, <laughs> maintaining a healthy body to, to, to show up and, and show off their their ability to you know apply force and 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 be fast off the ground. So yeah, that's that's typically how I go about it. Ninety percent of a uh, field and court based athletes probably don't even need thirty percent of uh, of maximal highly intense biometrics. It's probably about twenty five percent of their program. Nice. World class guys. And you, you mentioned a couple of different parameters of like speed and the velocity of movement. Um, how would you start to manipulate those variables to change the the different plyometrics which are which are available to athletes? So I think it'd be really interesting to to go through a kind of a case study and look at how you then would work with an athlete changing different variables to ensure that they get the the best possible program for the individual. Yeah. So. Um... I'll, I'll use my, the system that I use with, uh, with plus pliers. So we, we have a four tiered system that is built around, um, it's built around one kind of maximal tier, um, of movement. It's built around two sub maximal or extensive tiers and then a supporting tier that's not, not, not really plyometric. It's still a landing and takeoff based movement, but it's a lot deeper in range. So the two sub maximal ones will kind of start from the bottom and, and work up. So we've got our light tier, which is very rudimentary sub maximal landings and takeoffs. It's still quite fast on the ground, but the intent is just so light. It's kind of that just very light, repetitive. You might be moving up, just doing some very easy kind of pogos that you, you would use to lead up into more maximal based ones. Um, and we use that to to prime athletes in their warm-up, to prepare tissue in all different directions. We use it a lot in return to play kind of protocols um, as, a, as a kind of stepping stone into, into that kind of loading continuum. It's a, it's a great introduction to, to landing and taking off with a relative and um, fast reflexive motion to that, but the ground reaction force is, is considerably lower. As we scale up, we then move on to what I would class as kind of true extensive pliers, which is what we class as our medium tier. It's kind of real locomotive in, in general. It would be kind of like a relaxed bounding action is the perfect description of a medium tier. It's submaximal. It's the sort of thing that you could kind of put your hands on your hips. You could put your hands over your head and still be able to do that movement um, with, with quite easy ability. It's still fast on the ground, but it's, you know, you're starting to move. There's, there's a, a quite a bit more intent to the movement. Um, and we're going for kind of full ranges of motion when we're kind of striking the ground, um, front side mechanic as opposed to back side mechanic. If we were bounding is, is, is a true bounding action. 
as we move into the the maximal or intensive uh, tier, which we class our ping tier, is as, as it says on the on the tin sort of thing. It's as fast on the ground as possible and as as much intent to that movement as possible as well. And that can be anything from bilateral pogos for for height to bounding and hopping for distance, hopping at speed, bounding at speed, um, combination movements. The the light and the medium tier will always be a lot more multi-directional in nature. The pink tier is a lot less multi-directional in nature, and that's because the intent to deliver a higher ground reaction force in the pink tier, um, it tends to be that we have to work in a more of a linear-based movement in a kind of forward-facing, as opposed to moving multi-directional. Everything slows down when we move laterally, medially, backwards. The fourth tier is our deep tier. Deeper range of motion, dropping down into a movement, coming back out of it, but there's still a landing and takeoff action to it. So with those four tiers um, in particular, we have the ability then to manipulate how that training looks. So we we come into the off season, we're gonna have a we're probably gonna start with a lot more light, a lot more medium tier, and a lot more deep tier, a lot more kind of supportive action. The pink tier will start to be kind of drip fed in and gradually will become a lot more of the program. And the the medium tier might always kind of sit in there around 20%, but the deep tier might drop off. It might come in a little bit more. And and we'll always keep those four tiers in throughout the year. We just undulate what we need at a given point. So if I want if I want someone to be kind of championship ready, they need to be firing on all cylinders. We've done eight months of pliers previously. We're probably going to come in. We're not going to do a lot of deep tiers, but we're going to do a lot of maximal base stuff. And we're going to prep the maximal base stuff with a little bit of light stuff, a little bit of medium stuff. And then the main bulk of our, of our workout is in maximal based intent, focusing on athletes getting the most out of a landing and takeoff action. And that can then flip on its head. Like I said, the off season or a down period, we're doing a lot more submaximal. We're doing almost like a, a metabolic parts to the deep tier stuff that you can gain. Um, there's a lot of, I'd say injury preventative measures in there, although I don't really like to say that injury prevention per se, but it keeps people safe. It keeps some joint integrity to more yielded actions rather than such stiff overcoming stuff all the time. And you have those kind of opposing sides to it. So that, that's how, that's how I'm able to manipulate things all the time. So going back to me saying that I want an athlete to have more intense or maximal based pliers in their training at maybe, let's say a later stage in their career. Well, we're we're still manipulating those factors, even with with, with young athletes. Um, it, it's just changing at all points. None of those tiers leave the leave the program at any given point in the year. They just become very very reduced in certain stages, and then seriously increased in other stages. Um, so yeah, hopefully that kind of gives a bit of a of a better outlook as to how I I would kind of I talk about all these locomotive procedures and movements and. Yeah, there's a lot to it. It's very kind of broad in terms of what you can do. And I constantly come up with new movements. And it's like, well, where do they fit? How do they create an adaptation? How do they fit within the program? Um, and for what athlete is that more preferable to use for? So, yeah, it's difficult. So having a, a little bit of a system in place is, is awesome to have that and to, to see where you're going to get that adaptation. I think that's a really interesting insight as to how you can classify different movements, but also how you can use that classification to program for someone depending on their, their needs and wants in a year. 
Um, when it comes to things like uh, volume and intensity, you've, you've got at least intensity you just covered really well. So when it comes to things like volume, what kind of um, yeah, what kind of total number of contacts or what kind of intensities are you using to regulate this? Because you can you can go on and say, yeah, we've got this amazing program with loads of different stuff. But if someone thinks, yeah, you know, what? I'm going to do high intensity plyometrics and I'm going to do 250 contacts today and uh, tomorrow I'm going to see how I feel like maybe that's not the best way to go about it. So can you can you take us a little bit through the volume of those um, different aspects? Yeah, the the volume part is the is the hardest part of the equation. Uh, you know, as always, you can we can all understand the the effects of the intensity of a sort of movement that you that you see and the effects on an athlete that you immediately see, sort of thing. You're like, wow, that's intense. That's intense on that athlete too. Um, so how do you look at the volume? How do you figure out? You know, if I give them this dose, dose, what are they going to come out of the back end of it looking like? Are they going to be able to maintain this for a, a, a cycle? Are they going to be able to increase this over a block? I always go back to, well, how do sprints coaches, how, how do they dose sprint volume? Who knows? They, they use distance as the monitor. And you can have a six foot five world class sprinter and you can have a five foot two 14 year old sprinter. And they'll still do relatively similar sprint workouts, but the six foot five world class sprinter is probably taking half the strides that the <laughs> the five foot two sprinter is using. So you have to start to you have to have a slight system to things. Um, you know, you, you you have to have rough sessions and ideas as to what you're going to expose someone to. I wouldn't say that I am over critical when it comes to the really extensive stuff. Like I'm not bothered if I do give someone quite a quite a high volume of let's say lower kind of light tier landings. I know that most athletes will probably probably be able to do so. I and sorry to say this, but I don't actually prescribe in landings. I prescribe in distances myself. I thought the sprint community use it. Why can't I use it? I understand what tiers kind of require a certain amount of volume i know that medium tiers are going to have a much higher distance traveled volume than the light tier you just you're not in, there's not enough intent to it um but i know that most athletes are probably going to be able to handle kind of 150 to 200 meters of of light tier pliers um you know and you and you straight away are the are the monitor when it comes to coaching that and understanding well i know when that athlete's starting to get fatigued the movement's becoming a lot slower the ground contact time's becoming a lot slower the your ability to deliver intent is a, is a lot um is, is becoming kind of diminished as well whilst i'm watching you do that so for most kind of real rudimentary movements i think looking at prescribing kind of four or five movements for around 10 to kind of 15 landings depending on what you want to do and why you want to do that it's pretty safe. Um, it's when you scale things up and you're starting to look at more, more, more movements at speed and, and more intent to that. That's when you need to become a little bit more critical of it. But for medium tier extensive stuff, I think once you understand how your athlete moves and you're confident, you're like, this athlete can bound. This athlete can move off of two feet. Okay. Again, you, you should be looking at at figuring out ways in which you say, okay, for, for this kind of adaptation, so let's say that I want to work a little bit more on um, 
more on tendon stiffness. So I'm going to use a lot more unilateral movements to do that. Don't be scared to go out and, and to, to use something like three sets of 20 meters of bounding and then move on to, let's say, two sets of 20 meters of hopping. And, and then around that, you can have two bilateral variations that kind of support those unilateral movements. You could start with a bilateral to prepare things a little bit, move on to the, the bounding, which is less intense than the hopping. But again, that bounding will prepare, prepare you for the hopping. You're kind of getting that real high stimulation from the hops. And then you might just finish it off with being a little bit more relaxed and doing like a split, split stance, exchanging movement, um, or some slalom leaps from side to side. But I, yeah, I don't think that there are many athletes out there that shouldn't be able to do that if they display the ability to bound. And again, people say, well, how do I figure that out? You have a young athlete in front of you. No one's an old athlete, really, unless, you, unless you're coaching veterans. Okay, it might be a bit different for that. But 99% of people that are listening to this are probably young athletes. They're probably between the ages of 15 and 30. And if you're between those ages, if you can't bound and, and move effectively, then there's probably a lot more that you need to be looking at rather than just, I'm ready for plyometrics, or I assume that I'm ready for plyometrics, therefore I'm going to start using these movements. Everyone should be able to bound, really. If you can run, there's bounding in you. It might look terrible to start with, but you're going to start to learn those sequences of movements. Um, and then obviously when you get to more intense stuff, don't be, don't be shy to just say, you know what? We're going to do five landings on this when we're looking at a bilateral movement. And if you think, okay, they kind of ate that up. They did two sets of bilateral leaps for height. They did two sets. Let's just add another set. And then let's see how that affects the rest of the movement within that tier of intense movements if it has a knock-on effect cut the last movement or the following the following session that you're going to do don't do that third set focus on something else you you have to play around with it because it, it must be the same the same sort of situation when it comes to a sprint coach when you come along and you have that first introduction of a certain speed session well what am i going to do unfortunately i'm going to chuck an athlete into a bit of a hole when it comes to when it comes to them being exposed to that distance or whether it's exposing them to the protocol that, you know, they've got less rest or they have longer periods of rest. You, you have to, you've got to give the athlete a little bit of a nudge and say, right, we've got to try this. And, and the, the biggest, biggest way that you go about doing that, especially if they're not used to a movement, is by starting with it in a more scaled down version and then scaling that up. And that's the same with volume. You play with tweaking that up. Start small. Don't be afraid to start small and then you think, these guys are really ready for a lot more volume. They just just add a few more landings and see how that progresses. You have to test the waters with this stuff. Um, and unfortunately, there, there needs to be a, a bit of a push into that adaptation anyway to get that stimulus. Okay, you know, if I'm going through a stage where I really want to develop some tendon, the likelihood is that there's going to be a high volume of stuff in there. And the athlete says to me, I am absolutely flat. My lower legs cannot do a lot today. The following day after a plyometric session, I'm like, great, well, we don't plan to do that. We plan to give you 48 hours or 72 hours rest so that you're ready then. It, again, it depends how you program it. If I have athletes that can't afford to do that, then we don't stimulate in that way. We stimulate over the entire week by spreading that high volume of extensive stuff throughout a five-day period rather than two sessions a week. They'll do five inserts of plyometrics throughout the week. Yeah, it depends on so many different variables, but I think that you 
you have to start to understand yourself by experimenting. Because again, the two the two athletes that are the same age that compete in the same event come up to you. They look relatively similar. They move okay. They've got the in track and field. They've got the same personal best. You give them two. You give them the same plyometrics. One of them's flat on their feet by the fifth rep. The other one's just like, yep, yeah, let's go. I'm ready to go again. So how how do you program for that? You've got to figure it out. I think that's some some excellent advice to to look at the people in front of you and uh, yeah, you've got to walk a path together and so somewhere you've got to start walking, right? So um you can guide them along that path, but without walking you're never gonna know where where you are. So um Matt, I think that's some excellent advice. Massive thanks for your time and wisdom today. Where can people find you if they want to find some more information about yourself and plyometrics? So I I release a lot of um, of content on Instagram, so you can follow me at McInnes Watson or at Pliers. Um, and we have a ton of information on our website, which is uh, which is pluspliers We we also have um, we've got a, like a, a nice nice links part and a shop there where you can look at our. We've got an introduction to coaching biometrics course, um, which is. A, nice little mini course on there which is it, it goes through a lot of this stuff but just obviously in greater detail and you can take your own time to go through that sort of stuff but yeah we have uh plyometrics programs on our on our site plusplyers.com and yeah it uses those four tiers to put together a bit of a program for, for you to be able to understand you know how should i be feeling at certain points how would i move through a program that undulates a little bit so at certain times i'm going to be doing more of this or less of that and, and things kind of change and over um, the eight week programs that we run um, and, and that's just a really simple kind of subscription model and you get access to all of our programs which is yeah it's kind of a free for all for you to be able to just dig into it enjoy it and, and play with learning how to program and understanding how to move um, and there it's all video content as well so you better consume the videos um, the programs through video so you see how to move what are the, the movement mechanics that you should be using to do that? So yeah, you can, you know, always um, send me a message on, on Instagram at McInnes Watson um, and I'm happy to get back to you. Cool. Matt, massive thanks for your time and effort. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks. Appreciate it for having me on. Cheers, buddy. Bye. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Matt for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get some more fantastic information on plyometrics, you can get yourself in there completely for free using the link in the show notes. So hit that link in just a few seconds' time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast and you'd be willing to recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend, that would be fantastic. It means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.